0: I think our imagination is one of our most powerful tools. I think another powerful tool is community. It's the greatest technology, being able to work with each other as well as being able to imagine things. And so for me, success is kind of twofold. I think about self-realization, implicit in that's like deep introspection, knowing yourself, but then also with your imagination asking what if, right? And so success for me isn't isn't necessarily material or concrete. It's more so like peace. Not necessarily happiness, not necessarily balance, but peace and harmony internally as well as with the world.
1: Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Today, we have a brilliant and compassionate guest, Darius White. He is my friend from college, and he took a unique mission-driven path that I think will resonate with a lot of No Straight Path listeners. He's a teacher, writer, speaker, diversity education and inclusion consultant, and writing advisor. In fact, he is my writing advisor, he's amazing, and he certainly has a gift for helping people tell their stories. I'm happy that you all get to hear his inspiring story today. And I know we have a lot of creatives out there, we have a lot of business owners out there, and Darius has figured out how to do his mission-driven work and creative work, while also using his financial literacy skills to maintain financial security. So goals, essentially. We not only had a great conversation about his non-traditional path, we also dug into some topics I've been really curious about, like the state of our education system and how can we better support teachers as a society. One simple way to better support teachers is just by listening to them, giving them a voice. Thankfully, Darius is using his voice to affect change. But before we get to our conversation, let me tell you a bit more about Darius. Almost a decade into teaching, he works as a full-time high school English teacher in San Francisco, and he serves as a board member for the San Francisco Education Fund, which aims to support students and families and the local public school system. So, extremely important work. He uses his classroom and social media platforms to invite activists, advocates, allies, and educators into radical collaboration, inclusion, and liberation work. Finally, when he is not lesson planning or grading, he is working on sharing his experiences as a Black male educator on his personal blog, JustBlackThoughts.com, which will certainly be in the show notes. Actually, everything that Darius is working on right now will be in our show notes, so definitely check it out. And Darius has such a unique and interesting perspective that I think we can all benefit from. I learned so much in this conversation, and I'm sure you will too, so let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Straight Path. This is Ashley Menzies Day, and I am here with my writing advisor, my friend, Darius White. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Yes. So let's, let's dig right in because you know all about my story. So quick story about Darius. Darius has been helping me for the past year with my blog and helping me get my story out there and articulate it in a way that's reflective of my heart. And it has been such a really powerful and meaningful experience for me. So I just appreciate you so much, Darius. It's, I mean, incredible. So I'm excited to learn all about your story today. And I would love to start from the beginning. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about how you grew up the characteristics that would describe you, how your friends would describe you, your family growing up, and how that might connect to the work that you're doing today.
0: So my name is Darius White. I'm originally from uh, Temple, Texas. Some of you may be familiar with Baylor, which is in Waco, Texas, which is next door. And yeah, I grew up, you know, in a small town, one of four boys. I'm the second oldest. My grandmother and my mother raised me. My biological father wasn't around as much. He was in and out of jail. Right, so you can imagine during the late 80s, early 90s, like that crack era was hit really hard. However, given all that, my child was really great, right? Being able to explore and be outdoors. You know, I don't know if kids do that nowadays. I hope I want them to do more of that nowadays. But, you know, growing up, we used to make bows and arrows, go catch lightning bugs. anybody know what that is? You know, a lightning bug, you know, you put it in your hand and it lights up.
1: Uh, no, I don't. Is that a Southern thing? <laughs> no,
0: you never, you never go outside. I don't know. People have different names. Like some people call them clicker flies, but essentially they're, they're lightning, bugs. they light up and you go capture them. You can put them in a jar for the day, you let them go. Or you can catch them in your hands. It's interesting because I'm not as outdoorsy. I love to urban hike, I guess, and just walk around the city. But as a kid, you know, we climb trees. Yeah, it was a lot of just moments being outside. And a lot of my education came via like my grandmother. My grandmother went to church. Southern Baptists, so we go to church. I fell asleep through all the services, but the great thing was uh, getting pancakes afterwards. That was like the height. So All right, if you could stay up a little bit for big church, and then if you can make it through Sunday school, then you will get pancakes. Because grandma used to throw down and make pancakes for us. But yeah, I grew up in a small town. Really got to know everybody. I think that's been a, a big part of my like interest in writing is the stories that you hear from people as well. It's just uh, you learn more about the people because it's a small, close knit community. So. You know, you can walk down the street and say your last name, and everyone knows everything about you and where you're from. You can walk down the street and say, "Hey, I grew up on this street," and they'll tell you a whole history. It's a lot of very vibrant, colorful characters growing up, from Uncle Ray, who wrestled pigs, all the way to Uncle Bobby, who dressed like he was a '70s like pimp with like high heel shoes, and he looked like Prince. So, uh, yeah, that's I love my it. childhood. <laughs>
1: Wait, wait, we need to stop really quickly. I love this because this does already the way you're describing it sounds like a novel that I would read, and you know I didn't grow up in a small town, but it just I can see how those characters probably influenced your life. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: I think one of the one of the most important people in my life was my grandmother, my grandmother, Geretta, she grew up in the nineteen forties thirties forties, yeah it's interesting to see someone who grew up picking cotton in the deep south, in the heat, her and her sisters and her brother. She's one of four kids. She's the oldest girl. She had an older brother. She's the eldest girl. And then she had three sisters. So yeah, five kids. So my grandmother was, I don't know how to put it. She was like the original gangster. Like my grandmother used to catch scorpions with her feet. She's a, she's a country girl, right? And so that kind of obviously had an imprint on me. And that going outside and just being experiential what you're learning and going, touching things and, you know, like staring at ants and ant colonies and like putting your hands on beehives, which you shouldn't do. <laughs> Especially after my, one of my favorite movies was My Girl back in the day. The colleague who passed away because he touched the bees in the movie. But yeah, my grandmother, she was a pistol toting Southern girl who uh, my grandmother always had a saying. She was like, people used to pick on her because she was a small lady. But my grandmother would say, I never start the mess, but I'll finish it. (laughs) And my grandmother was actually fairly nonviolent, but she's just like, well, I'm going to defend my kids and defend, like, if you come by my house. Right. And so, you know, my grandma used to read the Bible to me. But, you know, imagine a black woman, Jerry Curl, her apron game was on point. My grandmother had of apron because she was a nanny. And so for years, I didn't know,
1: I really didn't know
0: what she did as a kid until, like, I got older. Because, you know, you would get these Christmas cards when I was a kid and it'd be like this white family. And my grandma, why do these people send you these cars? She said, oh, I raised their family. My grandma, you've been raising a whole nother family? So my grandmother worked for a couple of wealthy families on the other side of town, right? And so she would leave her little, like, Le Mans car, come back sweating, you know, up a storm in her apron. And then she'd come home and make food for us because we'd come back from school. But yeah, my grandmother is probably the most inspirational because to see the way that she loved people. Right. Given all the things she had been through, whether she had bouts with domestic abuse because her husbands were abusive, emotionally and physically picot and had, you know, uh, people call her names. So she went through it. But through it all, my grandmother was the most positive person. She never spoke ill of people. Like, yeah, she was a little thrown out when she first saw Lil Wayne. And she was like, what, what is this? She's like, well, you know, my grandma was old school. She grew up with like Frank Sinatra and like Ray Charles. And so when she saw BET for the first time, she was like, what is this?
1: That's, yeah, most, that's grandmas. most grandmas. Yeah, that's most grandmas. That's so funny. My grandma, when I even just wear ripped jeans, she's like, Where are the rest of your clothes? Like, yeah. I immigrated from Guyana for this. For <laughs> you to wear ripped jeans? <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. Oh, she sounds like such an amazing woman. Thank you for sharing uh, that. How did you become a teacher? Because I think that that is certainly a bit of a different path for someone who graduates from Stanford, and comes from a certain background, there's often pressure for you to probably do something else. So let's yeah. talk about
0: it. One of my favorite moments is my baby brother. So I'm one of four boys. We're all four years apart. Just happened to be. That wasn't planned. And so my baby brother is uh, eight years younger than me. And he's seeing me like, go through private school. He's seeing me come home and do all this homework. Because I used to just come home after basketball practice, you know, take the train, and my mom would pick me up, eat wash dishes, check in with the folks, and then go to your room and do homework. So I get like nine or, and just go to like 12. And I did that every day. I had a paper due every Sunday. So my baby brother really watched me like, go through this like, routine, right? Um, and I graduated from Stanford and we're, we're back home this summer. I think I graduated one or two and he looks at me, this is undergrad. He goes, man, you went through four years at Stanford and you trying to be a teacher? What? <laughs> He's like, man, you fell off. And I go, what? What you mean? He goes, man, bro, I watched you get all these accolades and awards. And then you became a teacher? Like, that's not a good use of your skills. And again, I'm talking to a teenager at this point, like a preteen teeny bopper. And so backtrack. Yeah, I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher until probably my senior year of college. Because I think i have a person of color in America. And given that I've had so many resources, so many privileges, growing up, I was always instilled with like, reach one, teach one. You do it for the fam, right? And so me leveraging all that I had, I wanted to make sure my, my parents invested a lot in all of us, right? And so I didn't want to be selfish and do something solely for me. So I've always been raised with being family oriented. But what's tricky for my parents, God, I love them. I think they grew up seeing like doctor, lawyer, because they've seen those. They've seen TV, right? My parents didn't know what a lawyer did. They just knew like Fresh Prince and the same references, right? Or good times, whatever. And they were very proud of me, obviously. But when I told them that I'm trying to go into education, you know, they gave me the, like, what, face? Because that, that's not a path for a lot of people, right? Uh, given the way the profession looks and that you're underpaid, overworked, you know how that goes. And so to tell my parents that, it was a big departure, right? Because they're thinking, well, you got this degree. And I got a degree in something that my parents didn't understand. And they still are getting their heads around. I got a degree, at Stanford in uh, African-American studies, right? African-African-American studies. And then I did, I did classes on gender. And so my mom was like, well, what are you going to do all these feminist class and these black classes? And I go, Ma, like, there's so much I'm learning in these classes. I remember the, and she just looked at me like, I didn't get you paid. What you doing? They ain't, ain't going to bring you no money. So yeah, I had to make a critical decision. Like I want to do education and not because I was undecided about life. It's just like, I had worked with kids all my years at Stanford and I even worked In the program that got me into private high school, when I was a senior in high school, I turned around and worked in that same program. So it was always a a sense of like being community oriented and being a public servant, right? Because so many people had worked hard for me, again, that I didn't see, that I didn't know, um, and I wanted to pay that forward. And so when I decided to become a teacher, my mentor was like, hey, you might as well get your master's. You're already here. You've already taken classes in the School of Education here at Stanford. You know, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch. So I did it. Don't regret my decision because I think I, I would fundamentally be a very different person if I had a, a, a more corporate job, no hate, no shame. I just don't, my mind doesn't work that way in that I need to be around people. And so one of the jobs I was offered senior year before I did my grad year at Stanford was, uh, I walk into this office and we start, t- I start talking to this Apple recruiting lady and I go, Hey, I'm from Temple. Cause she's like, where are you from? I said, Oh, I'm from Temple, small town. And she goes, Temple, Texas. I go, yeah. She's like, And she stops the interview right there and was like, I'm gonna offer you the job. And I I looked at her like, ma'am, you don't even know my credentials. (laughs) But she's like, You're from Temple. So I know you. She's like, I know you work hard. I eventually declined that job. So I was like, There's no way a 22 year old could run two stores. And I have no manager background or managerial experience. And so, uh, yeah, I decided to enroll in the Stanford Teacher Education Program known as STEP. And I did my master's in one year and I started teaching at 23. And I was a young teacher.
1: I love that. I love, and I just love how you, you were so self-aware to know yourself that young and to say, this is the work I want to do. This is important to me. And to just recognize the pattern of all the work that you've done, I think is just really incredible. I just love how Darius listened to himself and tapped into his strengths to pursue a career that he was passionate about. It's very brave. And given his more unconventional career choice in light of his academic background, I was curious about his definition of success. Let's take a listen to what he had to say.
0: It's changed over the years, but now in the last couple of years, you know, I'm in my 30s now, I would say mid-20s, I just thought about my imagination. I think our imagination is one of our most powerful tools. I think another powerful tool is community. It's the greatest technology, being able to work with each other, as well as being able to imagine things. And so for me, success is kind of twofold. I think about self-realization, implicit in that's like deep introspection, knowing yourself, but then also with your imagination asking what if, right? And so success for me isn't isn't necessarily material or concrete. It's more so like peace, right? Not necessarily happiness, not necessarily balance, but like peace and harmony, internally as well as with the world, right? I don't know who said the quote, but something I think about, I heard it from Nipsey Hussle, Uh, rest in peace, Marathon continues. Uh, Would you rather be, I think he said, would you rather be at war with yourself and at peace with the world? Would you rather be at peace with yourself and at war with the world? And so I think about that a lot where I could have made certain decisions that I've probably been decently successful in terms of, you know, conventional sense. Like I would have made a decent amount of money, got me a house, set me Kids pick a fence and a dog named Lucy, right? But that that wasn't my path.
1: Dog named Lucy, (laughs) where'd that come from?
0: (laughs) I don't know, Lucy, right? I could have that Obama life. But for me, again, the way success has kind of transformed over the years because, yeah, when you are from a working class family and you got bills to pay, and then on top of that, you're a school teacher and you're making 40 grand a year and you just pay (laughs) $80,000 at Stanford for your master's. You know, economics means something, right? And you got to figure out, all right, my parents and everyone around me invest in me and I'm making 40 grand and I'm in the, this really, really expensive part of the world, that being the Bay Area. And I always have to do the math problem for my kids. I go, all right, kids, <laughs> Stanford costs eight thousand dollars my master's, right? Because I tell the kids, master's degrees, people rarely pay for, right? Unless you get with a, a firm, you work and they say, oh, I want to invest in you, we'll pay for your master's. But I do the math problem, like, hey, my rent was $1,000, I have to eat. I had to pay back the loan. And I had loan forgiveness, thank God, for a little bit of it. And I just do all the math. They go, Mr. White, it seem like you're about to be in the red. I go, yeah, your boy was in the red. Your boy was having that college, continuing that college eating diet as a, as a 20-something in Oakland, right? So I could not not think about uh, the economics. However, again, with my imagination and kind of planning, I picked up an investment book when I was, I want to say, 18. Right. As my step pop, she's always said, you know, pay yourself first, pay yourself first, budget, 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 pay yourself first. And so I picked up a financial success book at, yeah, 18 from Barnes and Nobles in Dallas. And it was, and I learned a lot about investments. Like, all right, how do you invest? Because, you know, also when you think about how you define success, you're thinking about how others define it for you, right? How others showed their fears around it. So, for example, I grew up with black people saying the stock market's rigged. Don't do that. Put your money under a mattress or put it in the bank account. And I get it for various reasons, right? Again, so trying to, in my process of defining success, trying to understand like people's past narratives and their experiences. And sometimes those things, fortunately or unfortunately, get, you know, passed on, right? To young people. And then we pass on. Cause you know, you do you usually do what you see, right? If all you saw was this, you become a product of that environment. Right. And so for me, my imagination helped kind of break that.
1: We have to dig into, I've been reading all the articles, I actually just listened to a Wall Street Journal podcast recently just about teacher burnout and retention. We're seeing all of the really like caregiving professions leaving the actual profession. We're seeing nurses leave, we're seeing teachers leave. And teachers are so important, right? You guys are educating the next generation of adults. Mm -hmm. And so how do we... Retain teachers. What is your perspective on that?
0: I think we have to draw the line between recruitment and retention and then investment, right? I think they're related are not all the same, right? I think there's been a big push, depending on where you are in the country. I'm in California and I'm teaching San Francisco. There's been people who focus on recruitment, right? What do we do? Where do we find the prospective teachers, the brilliant minds, which is great. It's just that when we start looking into recruitment, we don't think about the environment in which we're bringing them in. And so the, when I say environment, I'm thinking like the culture of a school, the culture of education, even in the way we talk about education, who are the leaders in education. And so what ends up happening is you. You get people recruited and then they come in and then they're out within the first year, two years, they say within the first five years, that's when a lot of teachers uh, leave the field. And that's not because they're not brilliant. It's because the way the, the systems are set up and the way that, quite frankly, in a lot of senses, the way we're treated. On a interpersonal level, especially being a person of color, anyone who's minoritized, and then on a systemic institutional level, there is a lot of fragility and pushback because we have our critiques, right? Because a lot of us join the profession because we want to remedy things that we were faced against as kids, right? In our own healing journey, and what ends up happening is the education system takes critique as confrontation, and confrontation means that we're going to try to set the whole place on fire, and we're just going to be you know disgruntled employees if we don't get our way, and I think that's really an interesting way of gaslighting teachers into thinking that we're the problems when really we're we're trying to give our heart and soul every day, heart, sweat, tears to our kids. And it's just really difficult when you're exploited for your love because people will say, well, why don't you do it for the kids? And it's like, well, yeah, but what about my own well-being? And so we don't center teacher well-being. There's never really a conversation, yeah. right? Because if it is, they'll say, well, they'll pit it against student well-being. It's like, no, 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 these two things can collectively coexist. They're supposed to coexist, right? We're talking about community health. And we're, you know, just even thinking about our schools as vibrant communities, as opposed to factories, as opposed to babysitting spaces, right? But really, when you really look at the heart of, in theory, the heart of a school for me is like community and making sure everyone is equitably treated and everyone get what they need to be their full selves, their best selves. And so, Essentially, what happens, you know, you can ask some more questions. Is, uh, yeah, yeah. We come in whole, but we leave dehumanized and broken. In the sense that we're not necessarily broken people, but the way the system stretches apart and pulls us in different directions. So, on one hand, you want me to be educator. Another hand, you want to be a counselor. You want to be a tech person, and that's the beauty of the job—the variety of hats we wear. However, it, it's just terrible when there's not. People advocating for us, and there's not uh, resources in place to make sure we can do it sustainably. And so, I would hope that we could talk more about when I say we, I mean our country, our world about changing the environment in which we bring our teachers and our students in, because you end up having a lot of teachers who become kind of re traumatized, right? They relive a lot of their traumas from their childhood. And the thing is, they were brave enough to step back in the profession because they want to see the change. However, what happens in it is sometimes they become re traumatized and they relive a lot of things. and there's just never really aid or support or talk about, well, how do we support our teachers, right? How do we look out for them? How do we make sure they go home with their, what is it? Their cup full as opposed to empty. I think about the book of my kids, how full is your bucket? And so on one hand, it's a beautiful job because a lot of variety on the other hand, it's a tough job because you're exploited in a lot of ways because you give so much of yourself to the profession. So that's my spark notes of it.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That is such helpful context. And we actually had Michelle Odomegay, I think she was actually mm. our first guest. You remember Michelle mm. from Stanford? Yeah, talking about that and just how it's such hard work and it's so challenging. You don't have the resources. And even, and that was pre pandemic her experience. And so now you're talking post pandemic where things have just really, the challenges have been heightened, I would say. (laughs) And so first I just want to say thank you for sticking it out and for being in this profession, because we certainly do need you. The final thing that I do want to touch on is what are you hopeful about when it comes to education in America Coupled with the DEI work, what are you hopeful about? Because you know me, that's my, (laughs) that's my vibe.
0: (laughs) I think if we can continue to push towards like having a really high level of humility, self-honesty, and just this kind of growth mindset, which is like, you know, teacher terms, essentially growth mindset's about thinking about the journey, the process versus fixed mindset. People get fixed on the products and the grades and it's like, well, if you work on your process, then potentially your products will become better, right? But if you only focus on the products, you stifle yourself because if you get that B, and I have some kids who sweat when they get a B, like, oh my God, I got a B. The, the world is over. That and was like, me. And I, and I get it. I tell the kids, I get it. You have high standards. That's great. Just, again, <laughs> giving yourself self-grace, right? Like that grace is important. Again, self-grace is like rest and recovery. Once you give yourself that grace, you can go harder the next day because you're like, oh, let me just take a breather. Let me, let me step back. So I'm, I'll put it like this. I think I'm really, really hopeful and excited about the way, and this may be crazy for people to hear, the way that young people give adults so much grace. They give it, they're give they so patient with us. And you're probably thinking, well, no, don't they act that in class? You don't understand how much restraint young people go to the school they with because they're carrying so much, right? I, You know, we got students whose parents are passing away, students who are taking care of their nieces and nephews while doing homework, being a star soccer player. Right. And so when you really start to see them as full people, you're like, man, like because I don't want to use the word resilient now because people mm, co-opted that and they'll say, oh, they're resilient. And I'm like, when we say that, sometimes people just see it as there's no institutional accountability, meaning that, oh, I can throw anything at Ashley and I can treat her like crap and she'll bounce back. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to use resilient like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, resilient as in like being responsible. Because I think a lot of students are caregivers at the end of the day. I think a lot of our young people, especially students of color in minoritized communities, they take care of so many people. So they grow up so fast. And so they don't get the opportunity to take care of themselves. And there's not always someone taking care of them. Yeah. Right. And sure, you can say, well, they do have parents. I mean, not all the kids have parents, right? They may have people who pay the bills and put food on the table. That's important. But having a trusted adult where you can express yourself mentally, socially, because, yeah, a lot of our parents didn't have spaces like that. Our, you know, my mom and I are still getting our whole choreography down on how do we talk about our mental health and talk to my my dad. Like, how do we talk about our well-being as men, men of color, and not just a sense of women well, are nurturing, men are the providers. I don't want to get into that. I just want to I want to be I don't want to be in the box. I want to be talking to you. So when you think about what young people put up with every day, again, this is not to mention all the trauma, stress poor mishaps that happen within the school day, within the school system of 12, 13 years, right? And then you put on college and so forth. If a kid gets to college and makes it through, they've been through like the ultimate challenge of just like, they're like warriors, right? There's this inner warrior of like they kept fighting every day. And I think we just think, well, they showed up, they should be grateful and indebted to us. It's like, no, it's the opposite. We should be super grateful for them showing up for us as adults. So I'm just really hopeful that our young people are becoming more vocal. I think, yeah, I can argue my old head of like, oh, TikTok and all of that is crazy. And I sure there's that, but I just think like the young people, they're really, they're really trying to work with us. At the end of the day, they're really trying to be present with us. It's just that we sometimes we get into our ego trips or we we just don't see them as people. We just, you're just a student. You're just a you're just this thing that sits down and I import this information in your brain. I'm like, that's just the most problematic way to look at it. And so they become like property, chattel, inanimate objects to us and furniture to us, to some teachers, unfortunately. So I just keep that in my head. that like, man, if, if I have a student who told me, like, let me give you a little education on pronouns. Let me give you a little education on this, this, and this. And the fact that that student took the time to, to talk to me, that says, I feel like they showed me love. Like, because if they didn't mess with me and they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't talk to me at all. They just be like, yo, I don't deal with them, forget him. But the fact that kids come by during lunch, like Mr. White, let me show you this comic book, or Mr. White, like, let me teach you how to say this word in my language. Just those little things show that they're invested. It's just that we as teachers have to really remember that every opportunity we have to be really conscious and careful and loving in every moment as much as we can, because the kids have had so much put on their backs every day. Whether it's a teacher mispronouncing their name, ignoring them teacher not giving them feedback, they carry all that. And so I I just, I'm hopeful that we'll get to a space where we're acting with self-honesty, communal compassion, and we're just investing in each other as people, as opposed to what can I get from you? And it's not transactional.
1: Yeah. Wow. So I'm like, honestly, I might tear up. That Mm -hmm. was such a beautiful perspective, a thoughtful perspective, a nuanced one that I don't think I've really thought about that much. And so for you to have so much care like what you just said right there that makes me hopeful for our yeah. future to have teachers like you with that perspective yeah. i think that's so beautiful so thank you yeah, i just want to <laughs> yeah.
0: it's a moment I just,
1: yeah i just want to say thank you i usually end with final thoughts yeah if you have any please share
0: i think one of the ways of growing is doing things that are hard I don't always step up to that college challenge, but I think one of the more challenging things but really rewarding is trying to figure out how you can ask more questions as opposed to look for more answers and make more statements. They say that students or young people as they're developing around, I don't know, really young, maybe seven or eight, they transition from asking questions into just like finding answers, which is a part of the independence journey, like growing up, like, okay, I can figure it out for myself, but we can really make asking questions a part of our culture and not just asking questions solely for like I need the answer but just like learning about people because I think asking questions is an invitation right it's an invitation to get closer so I think about that also just thinking about what do you need and giving yourself permission authorization to ask like what do I need in this moment another thing that my friends and I'm so grateful for my friends like you need a support system no matter what job no matter what you're doing in life you need system. And so I'm really grateful that I have friends who who ask me about Darius, like, how do you maintain your peace? And I'm like, whoa, what does that even mean? Or even the question of what brings you joy? What helps you maintain joy? And I'm like, oh, and so this this, this idea of maintenance, right? This That's what I think of like sustainability, right? Because this is one thing, again, we can bring in the people, but how do we retain and maintain our people in that community, right? Because you don't want people coming in and leaving. That's, you know, that's, yeah, they're in and out. But keeping people where they feel like, yo, I'm invested and it's a mutual investment. Other final thoughts, if it's possible, and I'm grateful that I got to go to Mexico as a kid. They used to do what's called siesta. So midday, you come home and you eat with your family. You chat. It's like an hour, or two hours. Yeah, I love that. And then you just walk back to work. And so if there's any way, as far as your self-care routines, how do you do siesta, right? In the sense of how do you take a break? from the material world to really do that interior internal work. And that could be in the context of your homies, right? This is internal work that we're doing right here on this call, So I thank you for that. And last I'll say is uh, just think about your peace and joy. And lastly, how do you want to show up in the world? And what do you want to give to the universe for the universe to get back to you? So those are my final thoughts, I guess.
1: Thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Darius. That was
0: amazing. I try. I try.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of no straight path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find no straight path. Let's spread the message everyone and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.